This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to the Verdict podcast. I'm Paul Wheelock and I'm delighted to be joined by the Sunday Times football correspondent, Jonathan Northcroft. Jonathan, how are you? Hi Paul, yeah, I'm very well, thanks. Very good, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks mate. And we're really grateful you're actually speaking to us today because not only does it coincide with Jurgen Klopp's three-year anniversary of taking charge of Liverpool, it's also the launch day of your new book, Deadlines and Darts with Delhi. Yeah. We will come on to that more, yeah. but congratulations first and foremost. Thanks very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not every day it happens, and it's, I mean, it's a pure coincidence we're speaking today because I think we were talking about three months ago about doing this, but uh, yeah, good. Good stuff. Well, we'll start with Liverpool, if that's okay. Yeah. Club that obviously you have a lot of time for having lived in the city and covered them for, mm. a, for a number of years. Liverpool nil, Manchester City yesterday. Uh, Liverpool nil, Manchester City nil yesterday, I should say. What was your verdict on the game? Well, it's fine. We're watching Green. I've seen this beforehand, saying, you know, this this is the game that's guaranteed goals and, and excitement, and I, I, that's that's exactly what I was expecting. Um, even though, having spoken to, to Klopp and, and, and Guardiola during the week, the, the levels of respect between those two are, are, are huge, and, the, and they're continuing to rise. I think they both recognise each other's work. Um, so I did, you know, I did think that they might, each of them might take sort of measures against the other one's team, but I still thought it would be a very uh, open game with, with chances just because of the sheer attacking potency of both teams but, but what we actually saw from a Liverpool point of view I think was the story of Liverpool season which has been a huge increase in the in the defensive prowess the organisation the, the control in, in difficult moments of, of a match but we also saw that from City I was, I was interested it was probably the first time I think Guardiola has really changed his approach since arriving in England and, and I don't think he did it that much um, when he was at Bayern Munich or Barcelona, either you know, it, it was a, it was he showed enormous respect to Liverpool. The fullbacks didn't push on. Uh, he, he, he obviously kept Sane on the bench until until late, um, and they were very very impressive as well. They they had a lot of control and, uh, as well. So two teams who cancelled each other out maybe didn't have the spectacle of the four three or, or or the Champions League games, but you know it was one of those the, the old cliche from a football connoisseur's point of view it was, it was fascinating really really interesting game it probably doesn't say a lot about Guardiola how much he uh, valued the outcome of that game and the game in the later in the season at the Etihad against Liverpool not to lose yeah. points yeah yeah. he he might feel slightly the victor just because he's gone to Anfield which has been such a lion's den for Man City and also a painful place for him and he's got away with a point and he's got the game at the Etihad to come uh, and I think it reflects that both teams are looking at each other and thinking, "You are, you are the rival. Uh, let's, you know, almost like let's shake hands on this one, <laughs> and we'll see what we can do against the other teams." Maybe from a City point of view, one area they would feel that they're going to be better than Liverpool at is goal difference. And, and you have to say, looking at what they did last year, they've probably got a point. I mean, they will score so many goals. They're set up. City are set up to kind of beat a team and then demolish them in the last 20 minutes you know, get 2-0 up and then make it 5-0 maybe in a way that nobody else is in the Premier League so you know for them a point will do better than you against the other teams that's possibly the strategy you speak of goals there it's probably a bit of an issue at the moment for Liverpool you know mm. the front three what's your belief are they just still finding the groove or is there a little bit of cause for concern about the form I'm not concerned because of the the, the absolute quality that they've got because of their records not just last season but, but over previous seasons because of how they work together because of Daniel Sturridge is, is in great shape again and in form and there's another source of goals there for Liverpool I just think it's one of those spells um, if, if there's another 
point to make. It's I, I, I think that having started the season well, the midfield actually isn't entirely firing at the moment, and a lot of Liverpool's chances come from that midfield dominating the opposition, winning the ball back in the right areas, and then starting counter-attacks. I'm not sure that's happening to the same extent at the moment. So I'm not I'm not concerned, but I, I wouldn't pretend that that Salah or, or Mane or Firmino are on top form at the moment because they're, they're certainly not. Um, maybe the international break comes up good time to give them a, a little chance to sort of you know get away from the Premier League and, and come back again with, with fresh minds but I, I, I think you know there'll be another point in the season where they're all scoring again We'll come to this interview you did with Jurgen Klopp mm. last week uh, to mark his three year anniversary of Liverpool manager throughout this podcast one of the interesting points uh, I felt about there's a number of interesting points in there was about Mo Salah yeah. uh, whereby when he was recruited they felt like Liverpool have an 18 to 20 goal the season yeah. winger on the hand which would be an incredible achievement he actually doubled that last yeah. season is, yeah. it, is it a case of he's just set himself too high a standard at the moment well, well yeah I mean yeah I, 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 I think that is that is the point um, that, that he has got to think himself look I don't have to score every game if I score 20 goals it's a good season if I score 25 it's an exceptional season anything beyond that is you know dream territory which is what last season was I mean when you know, in, in, in the piece, I looked into how Liverpool recruited uh, Salah, and you know they they they, they were in, they were interested in Salah back in 2012, 13, well, 2013, 14, when he wasn't really a goal-scoring player. He was he, he he was very much a winger for Basel at that point, with greater sort of counter-attacking potential and and and, and trickery. Um, so, so the, the the initial player that they they were interested in wasn't a goal machine, and then when they looked at him in Italy thought well actually he's adding dimensions to his game if we use him right he can score um, and and they you know they, they use numbers quite a lot in, in the scouting and, and looked at what does a wide attacker score in the modern game one of the benchmarks was Aiden Hazard who I don't think until this season is, is well you know hasn't scored more than 16 17 goals in a Premier League season so when Salah arrived in 2017 Liverpool's thought was if he can score the same as Hazard or more then we've got a brilliant player on, on our hands now of course he scored 44 goals last year <laughs> which is ludicrous but if he do, if he gets up to, to 20 I think that'll be a great contribution because to touch on what we said earlier I think you, you know you're going to be guaranteed 15 to 20 from Manny and, and Firmino as well I know in our other podcast our Blood Red podcast last week leading up to the Manchester City games People were talking about the midfield like you've just done there. I don't know whether it's given the, the calibre of the opposition Liverpool have faced over these last 10 days, two weeks. But more and more you're hearing people saying, God, they could do with a number 10, they're missing Oxlade-Chamberlain. Is yeah. that fair enough? Yeah, look, the, the, Oxlade-Chamberlain was underestimated when he was signed, and I think he's still underestimated now, um, because he had uh, that explosive powerful positive um, sort of presence going right at the right at the heart of the opposition's sort of you know the, the defensive midfield positions just just the way he could attack them pressing wise also then break past them and, and, and start to link with the forwards a really really good player uh, and Liverpool do miss him but I, th- I think the issue is actually that Fabinho and, and Naby Keita are, are top players very good signings but neither and, and both haven't quite settled yet and Liverpool are paying for that because they've had to use James Milner at the age of 33 Jordan Henderson who 
He's had an exhausting summer with the World Cup and, and you know has to be managed carefully because of his physical issues. They've had to use them probably a bit more than Jurgen Klopp would have would have wanted to. Milner was so good in the first sort of five or six games. I think he's looked a little bit tired in the last couple. Uh, I think I think Henderson had a very good game against Manchester City actually, but it's been a bit up and down for form. But we've got to think about the bigger picture. Um, once Keita and, and Fabinho are fully adapted, then that'll be two more brilliant options. I don't think Ox is going to be available this season, but equally, um, he's so valued by Klopp, he wouldn't want to sign somebody and block the space for him. And then, of course, we haven't even mentioned Adam Lallana. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> he was such a key player for England, Absolutely. wasn't he, before the World Absolutely. Cup as well? Yeah, let's flip it a bit, because we've. it's only natural when draw with Chelsea, draw with City, lose to Napoli, people start asking questions about the forwards, the midfield. Let's be positive, the defence, you know, yeah. at the moment, maybe last season the attack was winning games. Is that the opposite now, where it's the actual defence that are picking up points like yesterday and, and grinding the, out results? Yeah, at the moment it, it definitely is, and, and that has got to be a good thing for Liverpool because we've, you know, we don't have to go back over it, but, but you know, it's a team that's conceded a, an average of about 45 goals a season for six or seven years since Benitez is never going to win the league so that had to change that had to change and it has changed I mean you learn sort of lessons as a journalist and one of them is not to not to tweet during games uh, I, I think anyway and, and um, I was watching Van Dijk thinking what a oh, brilliant performance this is another masterclass from Van Dijk and uh, if I'd been a bit more naive I'd have, I'd have tweeted that just before he gave away the penalty which is probably his first blemish this season but you know that apart him and Gomez were, were magnificent again and there was a lot of responsibility um, shown by, by Lovren as well who, who and he, you know won some great balls coming into that game very very important and then of course Andy Robertson gave you 169% as he always does <laughs> Joe Gomez is someone you'll know about uh, not only from Liverpool but when yeah. you cover England as well we're really seeing him develop this season but has he always been this highly rated behind the scenes for, for club and country well he has by yes he has not by the press probably but but uh, I, 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 there were eyebrows raised actually when Southgate brought him in for England I'm trying to think which friendlies it were but they were but he, he, he brought him in and, and signalled that he saw him as, as a potential World Cup player this is I'm talking about last season and we were all a bit sort of like mm, okay because you know Harry Maguire was doing well he had stones uh, at the time Michael Keane still had a, you know chances Tarkovsky blah 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 and he thought mm, I haven't quite seen enough of Gomez because Gomez had been playing right back of course for Liverpool caught out for a few goals and you thought yeah, he's a good player but is he that good um and, uh, and and he's but he's always been hugely rated by Klopp as well, and I think now we're seeing a fit Joe Gomez, probably a slightly more mature Joe Gomez. Um, what a good player he is! I mean, he, he you know I, I wouldn't be exaggerating to say that defensively, pure defensively, he looks like the best young English centre back. I'm a fan of Stones, magnificent player, um, but in terms of being a, a sort of pure uh, defender who can play as well, Gomez looks a sensational prospect. Definitely, it came as a bit of a surprise against City that he started back and mm. right back. But I suppose Liverpool fans are going to have to get used to, to Jurgen Klopp rotating throughout the season. Yeah. I know you've made an interesting point a minute ago about Keita Fabinho because again, some people may be looking at City and Liverpool on Sunday and going, "God, Liverpool haven't got a stronger squad." But do you think Liverpool do have that squad to rotate now going forward throughout the season? Yeah, I think Liverpool's squad is. I mean, you know, in terms of the piece I did looking back at, at three years of Jurgen, his first game. If you look at the bench, you're talking about. You know Jerome Sinclair, Jordan Ibe, Joe Teixeira, yeah. 
Um, and you look at the bench now, and it's 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 stacked for the world class players. I, I think there is the potential to rotate. Is it as big as City squad? No. Is it as strong as City squad? No. Can Liverpool spend sixty million quid on a substitute, which is what Riyad Mahrez basically is? I know he played yesterday. No. So you know, there's there's you still got to see the bigger picture, but it's um, it, it's the best squad Liverpool have had, I think maybe since 2008-9 might even be a better squad than that uh, and I know certainly behind the scenes that, that the FSG and, and Klopp himself are very very happy with, with what they've got at the moment they might they might still make reinforcements in January but they're pretty happy with where they are let's uh, talk about that piece you did if anyone's not read it online or obviously it's a bit late now to pick up the Sunday Times <laughs> but try and get it online it's a it's fasc- fascinating piece brilliant piece Thank you. you spoke to Jurgen Klopp last mm. week ahead of his anniversary what kind of mood did you, did you find him <laughs> <laughs> well what, might, what, what mood do you always find him in I mean um, he, he was he was marvellous um, he was I, I caught him on Friday he had a very busy busy day um, I think he had a sponsors thing to do and then he, he had his press conference and I mean may, maybe people don't see how busy Premier League managers are and someone like Jurgen Klopp is but actually just seeing that you know seeing the, the sort of two hour block of media that he has to do in the middle of a of a day when he's you know he's got a team to prepare against Manchester City it's incredible he was jumping from one thing to another but he got to me and we sat in a room just off the press the, the main press conference um, room at Melwood and you know he's just great fun isn't he I mean I, you know the first thing he sort of said was that, yeah, have you got me a present <laughs> three years you know um, and he started sort of having fun with me and, and he just he, he's, he's just so interesting Jürgen you know like as a journalist you're kind of with a lot of interviewees you're just waiting for them to say that kind of un, unusual or original thing he says it all the time and he said this great thing about you know I asked him where do you stand in terms of um, you know how close you think you are to winning something and success and he said well you know I could start naming all the things I want to win but that, that's not going to help me win them he said but it's about development for Liverpool and I can certainly say we're developing he said I can't guarantee we're going to win but let's have the time of our lives trying and I just thought that's pure Jürgen Klopp you know you listen to that and you think oh, that's a quote I can use that yeah. you know let's have, let's have the time of our lives trying and I think I think that actually sums up his management that it, there's a dimension beyond results and winning for him. Uh, it, it, it's about creating an experience, a life experience for the people who are trying to, who are in the team or his coaching staff, and an experience for supporters. And there's a debate at the moment about coaches who win, coaches who don't win. You know, Mourinho will say, show us your medals, blah, blah, blah. I don't know, this is where we are with modern football. I think it's the Jurgen Klopps and it's the Mauricio Saris and it's the and Pep Guardiola's that, that, that people love because it's about it's about joy as well as the result. Liverpool fans certainly love him though, yeah. but and I think that's key, isn't it? Not only he's clearly a fantastic football manager and the, the football he gets his team to play, but he actually gets it as well, doesn't he? And that's important yeah. for a Liverpool manager, isn't it? He'll never lose sight of that. And 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 he he said two or three times, you know, I, as I, I'm speaking to him about three years, he could quite easily just talk about himself. You know, kind of big up his own achievements. But he said two or three times um, that, that that he wanted to strengthen the connection with the fans, and he, he felt he had done it, but he wanted to do that even more. He talked about the city, about getting to know Liverpool as a place. Um, he talked a lot about the, the the culture of the club, and and you know, he said as a manager, one of the things he had to get used to in England was that managers have so much power. So when he arrived at Melwood, everyone's saying to him, 
you know, how do you want to do this? How do you want to do that? And he and he said, well, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> he wanted to fit in with, you know, so he's so weird of Liverpool's culture. He wanted to fit in with the culture. He wanted to fit in with the city. He wanted to connect with the fans. And that is just how he is as a as a person. And that, that's in his DNA. He won't lose sight of that. What I got got from the piece, which I'm sure everyone else who has read it is, it's not just Klopp though. It's there's a real team yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah. You actually coined the phrase the real fan free at the moment. Yeah. Maybe not Salah Mane and Firmino, yeah. but Klopp, uh, the FSG president Mike Gordon, and yeah. the uh, sporting director Michael Edwards. Yeah. What, what have you found? You went behind the scenes. There's yeah. a sweet Klopp. What did you make of all that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it, it, I think I think what I wanted to get across was that this three years of Jurgen Klopp, which has been a great ride for, for Liverpool fans, has has not come out of the blue. This has been part of a of a process. Um, that started actually when, when Mike Gordon in 2012, summer 2012, um, you know, if people don't know how FSG works, it's a set of investors, but, but the three key investors of Mike Gordon, um, John Henry and, and, and Tom Werner. And with, with Henry and Werner having probably tried to run Liverpool first, they gave Gordon his head to go and, you know, they, you, 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 you have a go. You know, I think they'd made progress, but Mike Gordon was the one who really wanted to to, to grab hold of the club and and, um, and 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 sort of you know try and pilot it. And and he he came in 2012, made the key decision to to give Michael Edwards the power to sort of reshape the football department, promoted Michael Edwards. And I think between them, they spent three years kind of setting in place this great structure, getting Dave Fallows and Barry Hunter. To run the scouting, putting Alex Inglethorpe in, in, in charge of the academy, um, and a program of signings where people like Bobby Firmino arrived, Sturridge arrived, Coutinho arrived, Salah was scouted and they didn't get him, but they tried to get him during that period. Um, and what was lacking? It's not that Brendan Rodgers was was, was 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 lacking necessarily, but he didn't believe in the model. So he he you know he I think Brendan's more old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. So the thing that they lacked was was the right coach to fit what they'd already built, and you know, into Jurgen Klopp, a guy who at Dortmund had worked in close partnership with a chief exec Hans Joachim Watzke and a, and a sporting director Michael Zork to to build a, a great team from almost nothing. Perfect fit, perfect fit in so many other ways that we've talked about in terms of connecting with supporters and the the passion, the way he plays. But actually, also a perfect fit in, in in sort of cold, hard structure terms, and in, in in terms of what they put in place. So that's what I wanted to get across: that that that, that Klopp arrived into almost a sort of machine that had been built for him, mm-hmm. and he's taken it on with these two in close partnership. And that's actually how how the modern Liverpool Football Club works. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Just a word about Michael Edwards, a man mm-hmm. of few words. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're reading a piece only added to the mystique around him. But what we do know is that uh, he's got an incredible work ethic and an incredible attention to detail. Would yeah. that be fair to say? It would. I mean, I, I have met Mike, Michael Edwards. I can tell people... <laughs> One of the few. <laughs> yeah, I can, I, can, I can tell people that he's not, a, he's not a geek sitting in a dark room. <laughs> Uh, in his underpants looking at a laptop which I think is what people think these, these kind of recruitment specialists do these days and, and also I think the point to make is that he does a lot more than just I know transfers are what everyone's obsessed by 
Um, he actually does a lot more than that. You know, it's his. It's, it's not just his his job to kind of look after transfers, but he he runs the football department in terms of hires and fires. You know, he researches managers. He'll just if Liverpool need a new kit man or a player liaison officer, it gets fed up to Michael Edwards. So he, he is running the, the whole thing. Um, I found him quite a, a sort of charismatic guy, actually quite confident, um, very bright. Um, someone, I mean, you know, I've, I've also spoken to Mike Gordon, and something Mike Gordon said that as a sort of leader of Liverpool from FSG, he had this saying that you know, speaking your mind at Liverpool Football Club isn't an option. You know, it's 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 mandatory. Now, Michael. Edwards is someone that will speak his mind. Michael Edwards is definitely someone that will tell Jurgen Klopp, "I don't think that's the right signing target." But it, but he'll 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 have evidence. He'll say this is the right signing target. We know Jurgen Klopp will speak his mind back, and <laughs> you know we also and Michael Mike, Mike Gordon would also speak his mind. So I think it's 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 very much a an open culture with with with, with guys who are going to sort of sit there and really thrash out decisions, you know, and and and, and I think that gives it a lot of energy. Um, but going back to Michael Edwards, a very, very detailed fella who I think combines not just what we know, what we kind of associate with, with, with you know, the, 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 the sort of geekery side. You know, he's, he's got Ian Graham, who's a, who's a, a big, big, big brain, uh, a, a sort of real data specialist who will come up with all sorts of incredible sort of metrics to, when they're looking at players. But then you've got Hunter and, and Fallows they do very much traditional scouting and Michael Edwards was a player that's the other thing people need to know He's, he, was, he was a footballer played for Peterborough um, he worked quite closely with players so he actually comes as much from that background as from the stats side and I think he's someone that, that combines both approaches in the way I'd suggest that you have to in modern football we are seeing success aren't we it's fairly I don't know if it's the, word, the right words in parallel but Liverpool have had this hit rate of signings yeah. haven't they for a few years yeah. now other clubs must be looking at them thinking yeah in here yeah I, I, I agree I, I think that and, and the thing that strikes you is that it's it's an improvement it's not a model that's it hasn't worked perfectly from the start you know we, we remember that there were early successes that the January transfer window I think in 2013 when Sturridge and Coutinho came in for a combined 21 million quid that's ridiculously good business yeah. but then there were the other windows where it was you know it was the Bentekis who didn't really fit the manager's, even though Brendan wanted them, but didn't really fit the manager's style. Or there were the, you know, someone like Yago Aspas actually was a, it was actually a really good signing. They identified the talent, but it wasn't somebody that, that, that maybe was ready as a person to, to come to Britain. Maybe it didn't fit the little squad at the time. You know, so they, they were on the right lines, but they weren't quite pulling it all together so you can see it's a, something that's improved steadily over the years I think what does help it is having someone who's as clear sighted in what he wants from a footballer as Jürgen Klopp you know a manager that he doesn't Jürgen isn't sort of tempted to just accumulate players for the sake of it and I think a lot of managers are it's always it's almost like comfort shopping you know if you've got the option to buy something you do Jürgen will be very specific about no, these, this is exactly the type I want, and, and if I can't get it, that's fine. I'll work with what I've got. So I think that's probably helped refine the model too. But you have to say that the last two or three transfer windows for Liverpool have been pretty sensational. Reading the piece, I just re- reaffirm my own belief at how harmonious the club is at this moment yeah. in time. 
I'm not being funny, but it, it, it is easy to compare <laughs> that club up the other end of the East Lancashire yeah. Manchester United at the moment. Well, they do is. seem to be going in two different directions. It is, it is, and, and in fact, you know, funnily enough, having having done that Liverpool piece, I then went to Old Trafford, and I did see the other end of the spectrum, and um, and I think it's, uh, this isn't my original thought. Others have said it. It's almost like things have flipped. I've been covering. Um, I've been covering English football for about 18 years now, and, and my original job was Northwest specialist. So Liverpool and Man United were my um, responsibilities from 2001 onwards. And what we see now, everything's flipped. You know, there was a time where Liverpool were the dysfunctional club pulling in different directions, very hit or miss with signings, always a political soap opera going on. And Man United were the machine that were just, you know, you knew what you, you knew what they were. You knew how Man United were going to play. Now, I have to say the difference is at the moment Liverpool aren't win, so Liverpool haven't become the trophy-winning machine quite yet. I do think the conditions are there for that to happen now. So that's that's the difference. But but in terms of just the, the harmony at the club, it's completely changed around. And United aren't putting the work or the the thought or the joined-up thinking into signings at Liverpool are and it shows just a final one on this subject not to take Jose Mourinho's side but the detractors will say Jurgen Klopp has to win a trophy do you think he knows that himself yeah he does and, he, and, I, and, and I, I agree with the people who say he has to win a trophy I don't think it's winning is the be all and end all as we've said it's about an adventure as well for supporters it's about creating something great and, 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 and but I'm also you know Old enough to think it is also, you know, winning is is also very important, um, and I think everything is in place for him. He is has to be recognised that he's battling some giants. He's battling the richest football club we've ever seen in Manchester City. He's battling Manchester United, who even after wasting 600 million in the market and blah blah blah, they're still a money-making machine. They will have they will have to spend. You know, and in Europe he's battling Real Madrid, he's battling PSG, so it's difficult. But I do think he needs to to to, to pick up something over the next couple of years, um, just that, just to, to have that affirmation uh, for what he's doing. And, and all you know, as I said, Liverpool are as well set up as have, as they've ever been uh, in my time of covering them since well, since, including 2008-9. It's the last time they were at this point. To, to win something and, and at some point that title has to be delivered so you would you would hope from a Liverpool point of view that that, it, that can come over the next two or three years definitely anyone who follows you on Twitter you would have seen over the last couple of days you posted outtakes I don't know if that's the right word <laughs> from your interview yeah. with Klopp the bits that was yeah. which were cut out of the final edit and in the summer not dissimilarly you did like a World Cup diary on Facebook yeah. very interactive with supporters while you were over in Russia and that's led to, to the book that is launched today mm. Deadlines and Darts with Delhi mm-hmm. how, how enjoyable and how different was it doing, doing this? Oh, it, was, it was lovely because it didn't start out as a book I mean it, 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 it was just me going to Russia to cover the World Cup thinking um, I'm just going to need something to do here I'm going to be hanging around a lot of airports a lot of planes um, I'm, you know, on a like, I think I, like a school trip almost with, with 20, 30 other journalists. Some of them are, are good mates. Some of them, you know, I like them all, but I'm not necessarily going to want to hang around with them all the time. So I just wanted something to do. And um, I actually thought about 
with something like a podcast or whatever and I just didn't have the guts to do that so I started writing a little diary on Facebook and what I really enjoyed uh, was doing something different to just being a being a journalist for Sunday Times which is incredibly rewarding but it's it's old-fashioned it's 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 you know you write your thoughts it goes in the paper we actually have a paywall so it's it's not like it's sort of banged out on Twitter and everyone's feeding back off it it's 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 the old-fashioned model I, I love it um, but this was my chance to have that different experience of, of, of people reading your stuff coming back to you with their own thoughts me going back to them um, and I really enjoyed it and, and I ended up looking forward to writing my little diary entry as much as I did the games I was going to just because it became a little personal sort of project for me um, and I, I think I wrote 40,000 words while I was in Russia on top of what I wrote in the paper and if, you know if, if you'd said to me before I went you're going to have to write 40,000 words extra to the Sunday <laughs> I'd have been on to HR I'd have been said I can't do what's that. going on here but as I say it was quite enjoyable um, and, uh, and, and, and pretty rewarding and it's, it's just nice that a couple of friends of mine in Scotland who, who have a sort of publishing company um, I've, I've put it out as a book which is great so um, so yeah it's been a nice experience in many ways does it kind of show that the, we'll probably talk about the player journalist relationship yeah. in a moment after what the experience was like in Russia with the England squad but is the fan journalist relationship changing whereby yeah. maybe as once you, you might get a call on a Monday yeah. morning if someone didn't like your, your, your match report and I didn't go onto Facebook didn't go onto Twitter but you can actually yeah. it can be done for a good thing as well it can I mean there's the, I guess the, the, the famous green green pen letter you know the sort of cranky fan that That's eccentric <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I still get them from time to time for some reason people always write in capitals don't they it's quite it's heartening like, in yeah, way, yeah, it's kind of, <laughs> so yeah, yeah you do get them but that used to be the, the, the old thing um, and what, what has changed, of course, at social media is people calling you to account straight away. I actually think, I actually think it's, it's, it's improved. I know this might sound stupid because probably people listening to this will think of a million idiotic things I've written or a million things, idiotic journalists in their view. But I think it's improving journalists because I think we can't get away with, for want of a better way of putting it, just writing lazy nonsense. We can't because there's lots of clever people out there who, and if you're talking about supporters, passionate supporters who know their own football club better than we do, let's be let's be honest. Um, so if you know if if you write something that isn't right, you'll you'll get told about it straight away. But on the other side, and this is what I found with the the, 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 the Facebook diary, you can actually learn quite a lot. You can get people coming back to you with their own thoughts, or they've seen things that you haven't seen, or they just say something that makes you think a little bit and, and stimulate something. Um, so it's great. I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to keep it going during this season. I have to say, I've, I've been pretty bad at, you know, I was going to do it every weekend and I've got two little kids and it's, it's, it's you know, I've, I've done a few entries, but I do want to keep it going because it is, I have found it pretty rewarding. Just ask you about that player journalist relationship at the top level of, yeah. of English and world football, which you do in your role with the Sunday Times. From the outside, watching the World Cup as a fan, uh, it looked like the access was different. It's, it was. was. Was that so much better from a journalist point? It was. It was. It, I mean, England has been a pretty grim story to cover, in my experience. I mean, I'm Scottish, so I don't have the, the added heartache that maybe an English lad would have watching a team fail all, all over and over again. But recent tournaments, until this one, have been you know a team that's been on the run a team that's been failing and and 
um, kind of putting the shutters up because uh, they feel in a, in a bad place and they don't really want to engage much with journalists and there's been sort of an antagonistic tone to it at times. People might remember Joe Hart and his silly interviews where he, he wouldn't talk about the darts game that the players were playing, which is actually where the darts thing was yeah. born for Russia because it was a joke from the FA about, yeah, nice about joke. Yeah, yeah it was a good joke yeah about how they wanted to, to actually be more open but it did it made a huge difference I mean it might have looked gimmicky but they, they had this um, you know big common room at the, 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 the media hotel that had the darts board it had the, the, the bowling lane it had a pool table and they brought in what four or five sometimes players every day who would all do different bits of media some radio some TV some press conference um, some you know sort of small huddles with journalists and then the players would kind of hang around and you could speak to them a little bit um, they seemed to enjoy it we seemed to enjoy it I mean look they haven't reinvented the wheel because when I started as a journalist I started covering Scotland and, and that was the good old days in terms of player journalist relationships you know we used to actually travel with the Scotland team the best place to do interviews was the um, duty-free shop at Glasgow Airport you could get Christian Bailey when he was buying some perfume for his missus and you could walk over to him and go come on Christian let's do five minutes and you know that's completely changed but there was a little element of, of that coming back um, and it was much, it was very welcome in Russia. Good to hear you've lived in Liverpool uh, for a number of years yeah. now based in the Midlands uh, you've covered the Everton and Liverpool clubs northwest you'll understand that Merseyside football fans, not just Liverpool fans, can have a problematic relationship with yeah, the England team, which 100%. reasons go beyond sporting, don't they? But I know some, certainly some of my friends and some who aren't England fans at all, actually, it changed the perceptions a little yeah. bit because of what Southgate did. They, yeah. they, they seem to be a likeable, yeah. it seems the whole setup seems to be likeable, the whole national team seems to be likeable yeah. a bit again. I actually wrote about that in, in one of my entries, which is in the book, um, that I think what turned people off about England until this World Cup until Southgate was this kind of uh, in your face you know British Bulldog um, Union Jack kind of strident version of England where if they old fashioned you know we are England I mean you know as I say I'm saying this from a, a, my dad's English so I'm, 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 I guess I'm half and half but as a Scot that kind of made me feel mm, hmm, not really into that um, and I certainly know that people in Liverpool feel that they're Scouse first and English second or maybe English third some of them, <laughs> some, some of them feel Irish second but you know what I mean it's, yeah. it's, it's a more complicated picture and I live in Leicester now which is a very very multicultural city where um, huge Asian population who will feel slightly different again um, you know my kids are mixed race They've got a slightly different version of 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 of, of, of Britain or England because of their mother's Caribbean heritage. So I wrote about that in the I wrote about that in the book, and I think I think for the first time, England were a team that started to reflect the country a bit more. Yeah. I think Gareth Southgate's a very intelligent and kind of just a grown-up person who didn't come out with a whole you know strident England, England, England stuff but um, it's just struck a much better tone and I really think that, that helped everyone it helped the team helped, helped the, the supporters there was a nice vibe there um, and if you tell me that 
some people in Merseyside actually watched England and enjoyed it. That's a mate. That's a massive. That's a massive. You were in that garden. You were in that garden. You weren't too gutted, but yeah. at the end, but no, they yeah. they got behind them. But just ask you about again. One of the big reasons why I certainly think Liverpool fans may have got behind England a little bit more was, was Trent Alexander-Arnold. You yeah. would have seen him, 19-year-old kid. I think he's still 19 now. Champions League final. Then that. What a rise he's at. <laughs> what an what an impressive individual he is. He actually he did the Sunday journalist group interview at the last England training camp and and just a class act um, you know uh, very mature head screwed on good family talked about how you know the the, the sort of the values his mum and dad instilled in him education all that kind of stuff and I think that's why he's been able to handle this rise so well that on top of being a very talented young footballer he's he's actually got a very very sort of stable and and, and good character and I think it was funny because in the World Cup Kieran Trippier emerged as, as a world class performer so that's going to be a problem for Trent moving forward because he's got a, he's got a really good player to sort of compete with for that, that right back slot and maybe Kyle Walker will end up going to right back as well um, it's almost like I mean Scotland have got this ludicrous situation where we've, we've got two decent players and they're both left back <laughs> yeah. um, so it's not quite like that with England, but but um, but yeah, Trent's got a job in his hands, maybe in the short term, to, to get in the England team. But yeah, he's playing for one of the best clubs in the country, and is very much trusted by by one of the top managers in the world, Jurgen Klopp. So it's a funny sort of situation for him, really. But he's he's such a he's so young. He's 19, so he's he's got plenty of time in his career, and I think we're gonna, you know, we're we're gonna see him. I don't know if anyone will ever break Ian Callaghan's record, but he might—he might break Jamie Carragher's appearance record at Liverpool. You could see that happening. You could see that boy being around for for years to come and winning a lot of England caps. Bright future for Trent and, and hopefully Liverpool. So before we we wrap up, you know, we'll hopefully speak to you again later on in yeah. the season. But you've been covering Liverpool for a number of years now. Uh, as someone who has that insight and you, know, you can you can speak to the people on the inside if you were a Liverpool fan would you be confident about the immediate and longer term future I would I wouldn't I mean look as I say there's no I said earlier there's no guarantees when it comes to success this is the best Liverpool squad and team I've seen um, I'm thinking back 2001 I arrived I mean Julio had a very impressive uh, team that won the, the treble or Evertonians call it something slightly different um, and, uh, and and I was a big fan of Rafa. He had a great team, uh, particularly in 2008-9. Um, and this is the best Liverpool. It certainly ranks alongside, but I think it's actually stronger because of all the things we've talked about, the stability of the club, maybe the squad strength. So it's as good as it's been. The problem is there are rivals who are stronger than we've ever seen as well, and that's going to be difficult. Um, but I would, if I was a Liverpool fan, I would be feeling that there's not really much more my club could be doing to try and get success. And that's that's all you can ask for, surely. Most definitely. Jonathan, thank you very much for your time today. Cheers, Paul. I really enjoyed thank interviewing you. you and uh, hopefully people at home who are listening have enjoyed it as well. Sorry if you can hear some of the noise background the back, <laughs> yeah. in, in the background. We are recording on location, the, aren't we? The magic of your talk service. <laughs> yeah. It's just, the, the glamour. Yeah, the glamour of journalism. <laughs> uh, but we will try and improve that in post-production. But uh, if you've liked this podcast or like any of our podcasts, including obviously the main Blood Red Show, Please rate, review and subscribe. It helps us uh, reach more Liverpool fans. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.